2: Welcome to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you've missed any of my Talk Radio Breakfast show, don't worry. We've put some of the punchiest bits of this morning's show into a bite-sized podcast, the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. Enjoy.
3: Talk Radio Breakfast with Julia Hartley Brewer and The Times. Be well informed.
2: Good morning, Chi. This is Radio Breakfast. With me, Julia hartley Brewer. Thank you very much indeed for your company. Uh, delighted to welcome our next guest. Now, Housing, Communities, and Local Government Secretary Robert Jenrick. Good morning, Chi, Sir. Hi. Good morning. Good Julia. morning. Now, uh, you're announcing this morning that uh, police forces and local councils are going to receive an additional sixty million pounds to step up enforcement of coronavirus rules. Um, uh, what was that? What is that money going to be aimed at them actually doing?
3: Well, we want to help local councils to continue performing their critical role of advising, engaging and educating members of the public. So they're going to be uh, choosing different things for different places. In um, some parts of the country, they might be sending out council workers to advise people in the nighttime economy to stick to the rules. In other parts of the country, they'll be going to small businesses, uh, helping to make sure that they're following the track and trace proceedings. If they've got, if they've got uh, issues or they're confused, giving them advice on how they can follow them. This is a soft approach. It isn't Uh, a sort of authoritarian COVID marshals. It's about having community champions and ambassadors and wardens, people welcoming people into public spaces and making sure that they're safe.
2: The hive is jacket clipboard people telling us what we're doing wrong and doing right. You're talking about a soft approach, but at the same time, we know that the government, well, we're told in one paper today, the government's already signed off on, but it's certainly very likely to, if they haven't already signed off on, a much tougher approach of closing down pubs and restaurants across large swathes of north of England, just as Nicola Sturgeon has done for large parts of uh, Scotland uh, because of rising cases. Can I ask you, um, have you been out to a restaurant or a pub uh, since July the 4th? when they reopened? I
3: certainly have. have,
2: You've done that regularly, presumably to help the local economy in your constituency. Um, Have you been to a single pub or restaurant where there has not been social distancing happening?
3: Um, I have been to to pubs and and generally speaking, they've done a fantastic job.
2: Has there been a single pub or restaurant that you yourself have been in that did not follow the rules with social distance, hand hygiene and all of that? Has there been one?
3: Well, I think the pubs and restaurants I've been to have been doing their absolute best to follow the rules. So, so they have so,
2: been following the rules, or it, have it, they not? It, it,
3: they have. But they, they have. Really OK,
2: so no, 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 that's just want to establish Because I've been out to it's pubs and restaurants sensical. since July the 4th, and I've it's not a, been in one that's not been following the rules. So why are we closing down pubs and restaurants that are following the rules and not a risk to anybody?
3: Well, because it's commonsensical that... If you are, if a virus that transmits through personal contact, the more time you spend indoors with other people, the more likely it is that the virus is going to pass from one person to another. And the more drinks that we all have, I think for some people, that makes it less likely that they follow the rule. I think that is common sense. We're not an outlier in coming to that view. That's a view that's been taken by a number of other countries with good responsible governments, places like the Denmark, the Netherlands and Austria. Many parts of Europe are actually going further. So if you were to go to Paris or to Brussels, they've taken further steps limiting access to hospitality. I I agree with you, Julia, that neither of us would want to see these measures in place for a day longer than is absolutely necessary. But the advice that we receive are are that they do make a difference. They're helping to limit the amount of
2: but, but you said a virus that transmits indoors. Obviously, we should limit that, uh, the spread of people you know, being indoors with each other. But the government had a policy, and I believe quite rightly, to get people back in their workplaces uh, for, for, a lot, for a period of time. So, you know, as well as I do, I'm sure, that if you look at the actual rates of transmission where people are getting this virus, most infections happen at home by a long way. Next, it's been just recently universities reopening, obviously young people in halls of residence, which effectively are their homes. and And then it's hospitals and care homes. And after that, it's workplaces. And then a very, very, very long way down the list, it is pubs and restaurants. So why are we closing pubs and restaurants?
3: Well, we are taking a proportionate approach, which is trying to prioritize education and employment. So it's right that we try to keep those settings open as much as we possibly can. None of us want to see pubs, restaurants and cafes operating on limited hours or even God forbid that they're actually closed altogether as is happening in some parts of Scotland. But we do have to take action here because the rise in the number of cases is very serious in some parts of the country. It isn't in all places, and that's why we're taking a localised approach. If you were in Manchester, the number of cases per 100,000 is over 500. If you were in Dorset, it's 19. So there are big local differences, and that's why we have relatively simple national rules, and we're doing all we can in local areas to clamp down on the virus and try to stop it spreading.
2: But we're told that this is a regional and proportionate, but we know that uh, local uh, leaders in Manchester, Liverpool and elsewhere, they've been saying, please, can we have local power? So, for instance, we can close down the pubs uh, that aren't uh, enforcing social distancing, which they currently can't do under the law. Uh, let us be enforcing things on a local basis. We can you know, direct things, we can do local track and trace, local public health workers getting involved, and, and local licensing uh, as well, and we can get on top of this. But these, these blanket measures aren't working. Now, we know they aren't working, as Keir Starmer pointed out, the Labour leader, during PMQs yesterday. uh, 19 uh, out of 20 of the areas which have had local lockdown measures, some of them since August, for goodness sake, a long time, uh, time enough for them to work if they were able to work, have seen uh, infections not just not going down, they're they're going up uh, at a higher rate. Uh, When are we going to actually have some evidence based policy making when if a policy doesn't work? For weeks and weeks on end. That's not an argument to extend the policy. That's an argument to drop the policy, isn't it?
3: No, that's not correct, Julia. The measures we've taken locally undoubtedly do reduce the rate of transmission.
2: How? Now, they haven't.
3: No. I mean, they. The data
2: shows they haven't. Unda- no, that's not. That's not
3: correct. The data shows that. They have not yet had the impact that we would like them to have. When will they have the impact? But if we hadn't taken the steps that we've taken in those places, it is almost certain that the number of cases would be higher, perhaps very significantly higher. So these were the right steps to take. Would we like them to have had more impact? Absolutely. Uh, We have to take a balanced judgment here. But you can't say definitely in the middle of a response whether they've worked or not. It is clear, and this is the advice that we've received, that if we hadn't taken the steps we have in some of those places, that the rate of transmission would be even higher. With respect to working with local council leaders, we work very closely with the mayors, with the local council leaders, and with the directors of public health. Today, I'm announcing further funding for them to help with their local um, enforcement and compliance activity so they can take their role very seriously local directors of public health are intimately involved in the design of the measures in their individual area. And in fact, some of them go choose to go of their own volition over and above what uh, national government is asking. You've seen that uh, this week in Nottinghamshire, where the director of public health has chosen to implement measures, which the government hasn't yet decided to implement itself. So there is a localised approach here. And that's absolutely the right way forward, because the rate of uh, cases is so variable across the country.
2: And and what about the evidence for the 10pm curfew? We, we the, Again, the leader of the opposition asked yesterday for the evidence. It's yet to be given. We know that the SAGE uh, Vi- a Committee of uh, Medical and Scientific Advisors were not even asked to consider what the um, the, the actual scientific backing would be and whether a 10pm curfew would work. Talk of a uh, 100 Tory rebels and backbenchers voting against that measure next week. Possibility of Labour voting against it. Now we're told maybe a compromise of an 11pm curfew. Um, what is the evidence for either a 10 p.m. or an 11 p.m. curfew? Are you, have you been shown any in Cabinet?
3: Well, I have uh, spoken with our scientific and medical advisers and they agree that it is commonsensical that if, Common you've, got sense. A virus, what, if you've got a virus that uh, transmits through in personal interaction, the longer that you do that indoors and the more drinks you have, the more likely it is for the virus uh, to transmit. And as I said earlier, That's a view that's been taken by many other countries. So we're not an outlier. This isn't an unusual decision. This is one being taken by other well-informed, rational governments that have done uh, good responses to the virus. We are listening to people's views on this. And if the evidence suggests that it's proving counterproductive, then absolutely okay. we could change the policy.
2: And just finally, will there be financial help for those pubs and restaurants that are forced to close? And again, an extension targeted specifically to the hospitality sector for the furlough scheme, which is due to end in just a matter of weeks.
3: Well, that will be a decision for the Chancellor, which I'm sure he'll take seriously, because the impact upon those businesses would be very significant devastating in some cases. There's already significant support in place. Remember that those businesses are not paying any business rates. They have the 5% reduction in VAT and the government has offered 1500 pounds per business every three weeks if they have to close, as well as of course the other payments to members of the public, like the 500 pound payments, if you have to self isolate. But if we have to do more, we will do because we're very, very conscious that hospitality is shouldering A burden over and above most other sectors of the economy. Online, on DAB, and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio.
0: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Want
2: truly hydrated skin?
0: Meet
2: Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum.
3: On DAB and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio.
2: The Health and Social Care Committee uh, Chair, Jeremy Hunt, former uh, Health Secretary, of course, and the former Business Secretary, now Chair of the Science and Technology Committee in the Commons, uh, Greg Clark, are examining the effectiveness of what the government has done and the advice it received from experts. Delighted to welcome Greg Clark right now to the show. Good morning to you.
0: Good morning, Julie. Nice have you, me on
2: again. Lovely, lovely to speak to you. Why have you, under and, uh, and uh, Jeremy Hunt, decided to go ahead with your own inquiry? We know there's going to be a public inquiry, but most people would argue, well, you don't want to have the public inquiry while we're still in the middle of the pandemic. Yeah, it's
5: not it's not our own inquiry. It's the it's the two select committees who uh, exist to scrutinise uh, the uh, the government uh, across all of the different measures. Uh, we both, as as we've discussed in your programme. Many times before, we've uh, we've discussed what evidence we've had before our committees. We, my committee, has made recommendations to the government, but we think it's right that we should join forces because the truth is, as uh, as we've discussed on this program, the, the science and the health aspects there is quite a lot in common. And so, if we can do that, and if we can join forces, uh, and precisely to your point, there are lessons that we can learn during the pandemic that can be applied as we continue to make decisions uh, that we should learn because the public inquiry, whenever it happens, is likely to be after the pandemic has uh, is over and, and we're through that. Yeah. Very important to learn lessons on the way.
2: Um, and that's one of the worries, isn't it? Is that the government hasn't been learning lessons. I think a lot of us who were very supportive of things like the lockdown measures uh, and understanding you know, the PPE shortages—every um, look you know, every government in the world was facing that problem—and um, um, doesn't forgive the lack of planning. But you know, once they're in that that situation, uh, it turns out pretty much every government has had—not all. but I mean, Germany's managed it, and South Korea's managed it, but most other governments have done pretty badly on the uh, test track and trace front, and also another l- number of countries have also failed badly on dealing with care homes and and protecting the very vulnerable and elderly there. Um, But the big question mark, I think, right now is over the whole lockdown strategy, um, the comparisons we do with the countries that have done very strict lockdowns and those that haven't done a a formal legal lockdown, but have just advised their uh, people what to do. There are now some really big question marks about whether or not the lockdown strategy worked at all in the first place and whether we should even consider any version of a second lockdown. Do you think those lessons have been learned?
5: Well, I think if there's one lesson that I think we did learn from the first lockdown is that it came too late. Uh, Almost everyone came to that conclusion. Uh, The scientists came to the conclusion. uh, Patrick Vallance and Chris Whitty did. And if you looked at what happened in other European countries, whatever measures were taken, they were taken more quickly and more boldly in other countries and seemed to arrest it. So I think one of the, the lessons is that you do have to act in anticipation rather than trying to to catch up um, once things have uh, increased substantially but in terms of i mean the point that you make is uh, is a is a very good one because different countries are doing things in different ways and it's precisely why select committees of parliament can take evidence from the uh, the, the the leaders the political leaders and the scientists in each of these countries So we can find out in real time what is working, what's working in Germany, what's working in South Korea. And we don't need to... To wait years, we should be applying those lessons in real time, and that's what we want to do.
2: But it, it, I mean, I have to say, I do, I do dispute with you whether the first lockdown was too late, because one of the reasons why we know the government was trying to push it was they did want more people, whether they want to say this publicly or not, wanted more people who were out and about, and people, young people, were still out and about, then to get infected, and that was about driving up the herd immunity. It seems to me they had the right strategy early on, and then abandoned it when Professor Neil Ferguson presented his uh, his terrible doom predictions, which turned out to be completely, you know, off off the scale wrong, but but it doesn't appear that the government is even learning the lessons of recent local lockdowns. I mean, as Keir Starmer pointed out at PMQs yesterday, 19 out of the 20 lockdown areas where we have seen you know, local sort of measures to try and lock down it's hospitality or other areas, um, the, 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 those areas have seen not just their infection rates not going down, their infection rates have gone up and some of those areas have had the same you know, lockdown measures since August they've had plenty of time for that to feed through into lower infection rates lower hospitalisation rates, lower death rates, and they're not seeing that. And yet the government apparently is going ahead and the Prime Minister's just, just signed off on a plan to have effectively local lockdowns on, on the hospitality industry in lots of these areas, despite the fact there's no evidence that it works and lots of evidence that it may actually do damage. So there's no, <laughs> there's no lessons being learned at all right now.
5: So it is concerning that the uh, the rates haven't come down in those areas in response to the measures that have been taken. Uh, again, and so we're going to have a session drilling down into precisely this. You know, are the measures working in each place? Uh, if not, why not? Is it the case that the numbers would actually have been higher had they not uh, been taken? We don't know the answer to that. We need to know, and we need to know now rather than in two years' time.
2: Yeah, indeed. Because again, reality is we are not, as whatever Matt Hancock wants to wish, that we're not going to defeat the virus, are we? So we do know that we're going to have to live with this virus for a very long time ahead, even if we do get a vaccine rolled out in the next year or so. Uh, in which case, I say, learning those lessons sooner rather than later.
5: Absolutely. And on the uh, on the vaccine, uh, of course, we all hope that there'll be a vaccine available. But one of the things that we discovered this week uh, is that the the head of the uh, of the vaccine task force expects it to be available just to half of the population, uh, even if it is successful. So we do need to be working out now, not just when we get there, but working out now, what are we going to do for the other half of the population who won't be uh, offered a vaccine? Online,
3: on DAB, and on the Talk Radio app. Talk radio.
2: Let's uh, turn our attention to a completely different subject. A landmark case uh, about so whether or not children who wish to undergo gender reassignment should be prescribed uh, puberty blockers, basically experimental, unproven drugs and cross-sex hormones as uh, started at the High Court. Kirabel Bell is a 23-year-old woman. Uh, she began taking puberty blockers uh, when she was just a child, well, in her teens uh, and uh, when she was 16, uh, before deciding that actually, no, she didn't want to be a man. After all, and she decided last year to de transition. But of course, those uh, puberty blockers and those cross sex hormones have a lifetime effect including, by the way, rendering people who take them infertile. She is now suing the Tavistock and Portman NHS Trust, which runs the UK's only gender identity development service for children. Uh, the legal challenge is also being brought by a, the mother of a 16-year-old autistic girl who's currently on the waiting list for treatment because she uh, wants to prevent that treatment going ahead. Now, uh, the pair were given the go-ahead to bring the action against the Trust uh, because they say that uh, the children cannot give informed consent for these uh, these incredible drugs. Uh, let's talk to Joanna Williams. Uh, she's an author of uh, Women Versus Feminism and Academic Freedom in an Age of Conformity. She writes often for Spiked Online and she's founder of the KIO Thinks think tank. Good morning to you, Joanna. Julia, a pleasure to be with you. Love is to, talk to you. You've, I mean, you've been uh, writing and talking about this issue an awful lot over the last few years, uh, uh, as have I. Um, very much concerned. Um, and again, people get, you know, slurs of turf, uh, you know, being being anti-trans and the like, talking about this. But this is not about the rights of uh, trans adults versus, say, trans women versus, uh, you know, biological women. This is about safety for children, isn't it? Fundamentally, this is about a clinic in north london which is which is basically allowing and helping thousands of children they are children legally to transition from man to woman or woman to man um using completely experimental drugs that will affect them for the rest of their lives including rendering them infertile and um it's been allowed to go ahead pretty much uh, unhindered um what do you make of this court case
4: well, the first thing I'd do is just take my hat off to Kira Bell. I mean, the incredible bravery of a young woman who, as you point out, has been through this hormone treatment herself as a teenager to now, as as one individual, take on the might of the medical establishment um, and bring about this case. I mean as you say i 've been called a turf you 've been called a turf, but that 's nothing compared yeah. to the bravery that you need to actually bring about this court case, and just to walk into court in the full glare of all the the cameras. But I, I really wish her every success. I mean, the the appalling thing here is that we need one young woman to be so brave. Uh, we're mm-hmm. relying on one young woman to challenge, and it's not just the medical establishment. It's schools. It's the Crown Prosecution Service so many different institutions in our society have not questioned um, this ideology that, that children can be born in the wrong body.
2: Yeah, that, That's the thing we have seen, I mean, to be fair to the government, they have actually issued now guidance to the uh, to schools to say, you know, don't encourage this. Again, this isn't about saying, no, you're not, and telling people to shut up and, you know, and going back to the days when, you know, gay children couldn't come out or anything like that. But this is just about not necessarily saying because a little girl wants to play with trucks or or a little boy who wants to play with dolls. Yes, yes, you're in the wrong body. You should have some massive, massive drugs that will totally alter your, your body and your your mind for the rest of your life. And 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 doing it sort of almost willy nilly. And this is what's been happening. I think a lot of people just just are totally unaware and even to this day totally unaware of how quick and simple and easy this process is. A child expresses thoughts, God knows where they're getting them, a lot of them, think children, even, you know, sort of preschool children and parents bringing their kids in to these clinics, getting referrals, teachers and uh, and doctors saying these children are trans. Um, a lot of these children um, have other disorders. They're severely autistic or, or have other, you know, they have depression, they have other issues. They think that their answer to all their problems is, "Ah, oh, I'm in the wrong body. I've seen lots of videos online. That's what it is. and And some of these children are given um are given very, very powerful drugs. Without more than just you know a, a couple of hours of of a conversation with a with a with a medic or a psychologist at the clinic, uh, and undergoing you know not months and months of therapy to make sure this is the right decision, but but just you know a one day trip, and then they're on these puberty blockers. I, I mean, this is extraordinary that this has been allowed to happen.
4: It absolutely is extraordinary, and again, I think there's just real moral cowardice that nobody in the medical establishment has has really stuck their head above the parapet and called this out. But but on the specifics of it, I mean, the idea that a child a child um, can consent to take these puberty blockers without anybody really knowing the full long term consequences. You know, my daughter doesn't understand the consequences of what will happen if she doesn't tidy her bedroom. Yes. Never mind trying to say, you know, if you take this pill now, in fifteen years' time, you might not have be able to have a baby. I mean, I don't think it was even put that starkly to them. But which fourteen year olds? 13-year-old is truly bothered or truly has any concept of 10, 15, 20 years into the future. They just don't. But also um, the idea that puberty, which is, as we know, Natural biological process can just be paused, you know, as if it's just some inconvenient CD that you don't want to listen to anymore. So you just hit the pause button for a few months or a few years and then pick up your life when you've decided you want to hit play again. That That's really deceptive and deceitful
2: to give children that message. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. And to give parents a message. Even the parents who want the best, they're terrified. They're told, you know, their child is going to commit suicide if they don't let them transition. Again, um, I mean, basically emotional blackmail there as well. Well, but actually, uh, you know, the, the, the failure to do any research into what happens to these young people after they transition and how unhappy many of them are, and guess what? It turns out that being put on these powerful drugs, changing their bodies, doesn't actually make them happy. And often in these cases, um, and again, I've got no issue with people who want to do this after eighteen. But um, it, it, as you say, it, a lot of people are very young. You know, in, in this age, that they're, they're very confused, and and we know that these drugs they have not gone through the proper testing regime. There, there is no other field of medicine. Where you could give drugs like this to otherwise healthy people without the proper testing uh, and, uh, and and evidence that that would be would be necessary and and even again also the the the, the proper level of consent because this this is all resting at the high court isn't it that the Tavistock gave drugs to this girl when she was sixteen years old she could not possibly have been able to give informed consent and therefore this is a very very serious offence by the Tavistock. Um I think whichever way this case goes, there's a very strong question mark whether the Tavistock clinic will continue. Uh, we, we know that a number of senior people there have resigned over recent months and years concerned about what's going on. Do you, do you think we may see the end of this clinic? Well, I certainly hope so.
4: I really, really do hope so, because I can't see how it's done anything positive at all. And, of course, the tragedy is that the sooner these young girls, and it it really is overwhelming majority of them are young girls, um, are put on these hormones, what's not done is any deeper investigation into some of the deep psychological problems that may have prompted them to see themselves as being born in the wrong body in the first place. So you've mentioned autism. A, A large number of these girls, and this is obviously... Obviously, not at all a problem, but but a large number of these girls grow up and become lesbians. And obviously, that's brilliant, and they should be allowed to live their lives as lesbians rather than being biologically coached out of it uh, by being encouraged to change their sex as well.
3: Online, on DAB, and on the Talk Radio app Talk Radio.
2: Thanks for listening to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and give me a good review. And don't forget to catch me on the Talk Radio Breakfast Show every weekday from 6.30 until 10.
5: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more.